Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And today I'm joined by my podcast partner, Rachel Levin. Welcome, Rachel. Such a bittersweet moment, Michael. This is our last episode of the year. It's our last episode of the year, but we keep rolling. It's just the the calendar rolling by. But we want to take this opportunity to wrap up the year with a really interesting episode about the future. Right. Rachel, tell us what we're going to hear today. Well, we're going to hear a great conversation that you had with Peter Schwartz, who's the Chief Futures Officer and SVP of Strategic Planning at Salesforce. Mick Costigan, he's the Vice President of Salesforce Futures, and Neil Ferguson, he's a historian, author, and senior fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. And it's a great way of thinking about how can we actually plan and think about how to make decisions in such an uncertain environment. I don't know about you, Michael, but I mean, even planning a vacation right now is excruciating with all these changing variables, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and we get some interesting perspective from Peter and Mick who are on the futurist side and then Neil with a historical view of what to think about for the future. And these folks spend a lot of time thinking about scenario planning, which is really, you know, Peter Schwartz has been a leader in that uh, practice for a long time and using that to identify the most likely outcomes for the future and how best we can prepare. Mm -hmm. So we're going to reflect on decision making over the past year and talk about that a little bit. And then we're going to share some 2022 trends for business leaders and how they should be thinking about this upcoming year. And we're going to offer some advice to individuals who want to apply scenario planning to their own lives. So let's get right into the conversation with Peter Schwartz, who's the Chief Futures Officer at Salesforce, along with Mick Costigan, Vice President of Salesforce Futures, and Neil Ferguson, historian, author, and senior fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. Welcome to the show, Mick. Thanks, Michael. Great to be here with you. Great. And welcome, Peter. Good to talk to you, Michael. Glad to be here. All right. And welcome, Neil. Great to be with you, Michael. Okay. Um, Mick, let me start with you. The Salesforce Futures Group, what is that all about? Can you tell us about what you guys do over there? Sure. So our job at Salesforce, Michael, is to take an organized look at the future. So I have a small team uh, that does this work in collaboration with Peter Schwartz, our Chief Futures Officer, who's joining us here today, and a cast of characters from around the company. What it means to be organized is really three things. Firstly, we make choices about what futures are most important to investigate. And our, our filter there is really that those futures will inform the decisions that we as a company uh, and our customers need to make. The second thing we do is that we approach developing those futures in a structured manner. So we recruit people who you know come from different ways of thinking, who are ruthlessly curious uh, about open uh, to hearing and acting on new ideas and able to synthesize those ideas together. And then we bring in you know diverse experts internally and externally, people like Neil, who you'll hear from, who has a really strong, distinct perspective. Uh, we want those strong voices in the conversation. We want that diversity so that we can get past our own biases because mm-hmm. the big challenge with thinking about the future is that we are all biased and it's really easy to uh, be stuck inside those biases and not to see what's coming. So we want to get beyond them. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we think very carefully about how we communicate them and the impact we want the futures to have. At the end of the day, making decisions, thinking about the future, it's a social process, Mm -hmm. right? And so we need stories that will help people make meaning together. uh, And we need ways of engaging people and allowing them to play the game of let's pretend, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. that they can play with the choices they might have to make in these futures rehearse those decisions uh, and come to shared understanding that enables them to move faster. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And so Neil, as a historian, what's your thought about uh, 
predicting the future and, and coming at it from a little bit different perspective? Well, there's a, a view which is wrong that you can't <laughs> learn anything from history and <laughs> you certainly can't expect to predict the future. And this, this erroneous view became very dominant in academia so that when I was an undergraduate in the 1980s, I was told, well, there's absolutely no point trying to learn anything from the past and, and forget about the future. I've spent my entire career trying to prove this view wrong mm -hmm. on the ground that the reason we study history is not because it's jolly interesting to see how previous generations lived. We study it in order to better understand our own circumstances and to envision plausible futures. And history is very good at this uh, as a discipline. There was a great philosopher of history, R.G. Collingwood, who back in 1939 said, the real role the historian plays is like that of a, a woodsman leading travelers through a forest. And thanks to pattern recognition, thanks to the fact that the historian has seen many wars and many financial crises, has seen many, many more things than any individual can see in a lifetime, the historian can see the tiger in the grass. And mm -hmm. that tiger in the grass is a terribly important tiger to see if you're a traveler. So for me, the, the key to the role that history plays is, is essentially that it equips you with a just much larger data set that you could ever derive from your lived experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what enables the historian to spot the tiger in the grass. Now, of course, history is not a perfect guide to the future. I think the historian has to regard the future as in large measure uncertain territory. It won't be a perfect fit, but there pr probably will still be tigers in the grass, mm -hmm. wars, plagues, things that have recurred throughout human history. Mm -hmm. And we are just well equipped to spot those tigers. Mm -hmm. And Peter, you come at this from the practice of scenario planning, which you really helped develop. How does this look at history and data map to scenario planning and thinking about the future? When you study the future, uh, for me, they're a kind of, you have to understand history, right? They're the forces that are shaping the future. Uh -huh. But as Neil rightly says, there's still huge uncertainties that lie ahead. And that's where scenario planning becomes interesting, is how do you take those forces and weave them together into useful, intelligible, thoughtful patterns that give you some meaning for where mm -hmm. things are going, and gives you some useful tools for decision-making. Mm -hmm. uh, look, uh, the, the truth is, if you have multiple scenarios, it's not too hard to get the future right. Mm -hmm. The hard part is actually making decisions and having confidence in your analysis that you're actually seeing things uh, 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 accurately. And that's, again, where the historian becomes incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And particularly the provocative historian like Neil, who challenges conventional wisdom often in thinking uh, about the future. Paul Valéry, the, the great uh, essayist from uh, France, uh, was the author of the famous quote, the future isn't what it used to be. Uh -huh. uh, and it was in his uh, essay on uncertainty. And uh, what he meant by that was that for a very long time, you could predict the future. The future was like today and yesterday, right? That things didn't change very much. Uh, uh -huh. And, you know, you could be pretty sure that your kid's life was going to be pretty close to your life, which was pretty close to your father's life, right? And that's the way the future was. And then science, the Renaissance comes along and then science comes along and suddenly we start inventing stuff and seeing the world in completely new ways and changing the human condition in really big ways. Mm -hmm. And then the future becomes fundamentally uncertain because we can mm -hmm. change it in both conscious and unconscious ways in very large 
and very rapid ways. When the Industrial mm -hmm. Revolution came along, suddenly things were changing incredibly fast. And that's where it really, uncertainty begins to arise. And that's where you need scenario planning. I've been mm -hmm. doing it for 50 years and the world is still uncertain, uh, mm -hmm. just as uncertain as when I started 50 years ago. And so that's where I find, for example, my conversations with Neil incredibly helpful in trying to understand uh, where things are going and why things are happening as they do. Mm -hmm. And I'm so curious about the practical application within a company context. Salesforce is so fortunate to have this practice inside the company and be able to use it for ourselves and, and for our customers, et cetera. Mick, can you talk to that a little bit about what that's like to engage with executives and how, how you guys present ideas, et cetera? Yeah, um, fundamentally, I think where we come at this um, is very much in trying to influence how decisions are made. Right, um, speculation about the future is out there in the media all the time. But what's most useful for executives is actually to bring those types of speculations into their specific context to help them think about the choices that they have on the table. You know, our our, our dearly beloved and late uh, board member Colin Powell had a great great uh, line about this. He talked about the need to make decisions before you have seventy percent of the information available to you. And if right. you don't make decisions uh, early enough, then you risk being too late and others uh, jumping ahead of you. Mm -hmm. uh, and building on what Peter just said about when, when the future is uncertain, when there's a lot of disruption around, uh, executives need all the help that they can get to kind of identify what's emerging, what is changing that's going to be really important to them and figure out how to make the decisions they need to, uh, both individually and, and more importantly as teams. So they need a process around that. And that's really what we, we try to offer. Fascinating. So what we'd love to do today is go through some stuff that we're all going to be seeing in 2022 and get some, dare I say, predictions. <laughs> Nobody has Scenarios. Scenarios. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so Peter, let me start with you. I know you and the team have been working on scenarios from the beginning of the pandemic. Can you just update us on sort of where we are right now and your thinking around this? Well, right now, we're again at a moment of great uncertainty. I'll speak for a second, but I want to turn over in, to, to Neil right away, because in fact, Neil is one of our principal sources, right? So in fact, just <laughs> right. this morning, I was reading Neil's latest missive uh, uh, on Omicron. Uh, mm -hmm. But most fundamentally, there, there's several big questions we don't know yet. We know it spreads pretty fast. Uh, we, we don't know yet how virulent, maybe it's even more mild. We don't really know. That's a possibility. And third, yeah. uh, we don't uh, really know yet how the vaccine's affected. In all cases, we some, see some worrying signs, some positive signs. So it's going to be another couple of weeks before we really know, mm -hmm. I think, uh, what the dynamics of the virus are. But maybe, Neil, you, you, you want to comment on this, because I think you're really deep in the thick of it. Colin Powell was right that you often have to, nearly always have to make decisions with insufficient data. Yeah. What can you do with 7% of the data, never mind 70%? That's kind of where we are with uh, the Omicron variant on December the 6th when we're having this conversation, and we'll be in a different place on December the 7th. So there's a lot to watch out for. At the moment, at this early stage, it's I think there are grounds for thinking. We are transitioning from a pandemic to an endemic experience. We're going to be living with a very infectious but less lethal uh, version of SARS-CoV-2. Mm -hmm. And that's in line with historical experience. It's worth adding that w one reason this is not as big a disaster as HIV is that we were able to find vaccines with very high efficacy, which never was possible with HIV. Right. We know that even although it may take a couple of months, 
that at Moderna and, and BioNTech, they will be able to produce vaccines that work against any variant of SARS-CoV-2 that comes at us. I think I've heard that said with great confidence. Yeah. And that's very important to bear in mind. Similarly, there are therapies now which don't look perfect, but they do something. We're not back in March of 2020. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think it's important to emphasize that. Now, this probably sounds a little complex and confused to people who are listening. But I would say that on balance at the moment, uh, what panic there will be in the next few weeks, you should see through. Look ahead, because remember, we're planning scenarios not two days out, right, right Peter? We're, we're doing scenarios that are measurable in months and years. And on the months and years basis, I think the outlook is actually not too bad. Mm -hmm. uh, I, dare, I, I say this with hesitancy because it's not going to feel good in the short run, but I think the long run picture is actually reasonably benign the way things are going. I think that's right, Neil. And and I would oh, the the only scenario I think that can go really wrong is if we do get another nasty mutation that moves in a in direction that we are not prepared for. Uh, but the biology does not support that view. Things are moving in the, precisely the direction I, I think you suggest, Neil. So we have some, the upside scenarios have a bit more likelihood than the downside scenarios for mm -hmm. COVID in the near future. So if you, either of you, were advising, let's say, a government on a travel ban or a company holding a big event, whether they should do that, what would you say right now? What, what would that look like? The evidence on travel bans has been consistently that they are closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. Yeah. They create a good deal of friction. I don't think they do terribly much to halt the spread of the virus. Uh, after all, most of the spread globally has been uh, over short distances within communities. Mm -hmm. And so it's much more important to have testing. And, and we still aren't testing nearly enough, uh, especially ahead of any gathering. I think one can say with some confidence that anybody who holds a large gathering in a major city over the next few weeks has a high risk that everybody or at least half the people there will get infected. It only takes one person. We know this from parties that happened in Oslo just uh, mm -hmm. recently. Mm -hmm. It can be one Omicron carrier who can infect half the people there. So yeah. I, I'd say the travel bans and the travel restrictions that are being imposed now are all colossal waste of time, and it's too late. It always comes too late. Yeah. The key issue is can you contain spread and remember, this is an interesting virus. It has a low dispersion factor. A very small number of people do most of the spreading. If mm -hmm. you can limit the super spreader events, if you can identify the potential super spreaders, then you can stop the thing spreading like wildfire. That mm -hmm. would be the advice I'd give to policymakers. There's one exception on the travel that I would uh, suggest, which is, in fact, islands like Hawaii, where we actually control access. And if we test adequately coming in, we can pretty well manage it. It's a question of testing people uh, before they arrive. Uh, uh -huh. And it, it's how we managed it uh, to keep it down in the early stages of the pandemic. And now we're reviving that again. Uh, interestingly enough, our cases are very heavily residents going to places like Las Vegas and bringing disease back with them, as opposed uh -huh. to the tourists. The one other thing you'd say to policymaker is, there's a huge world of difference uh, between being unvaccinated 
uh, and being properly vaccinated in this environment. Absolutely. And, yeah, and that yeah. message can't be repeated often enough. Mm -hmm. The unvaccinated are the overwhelming uh, proportion of ill people in, in hospitals. They are the 90% plus of the dead in the Delta wave. So any policymaker has to just keep on pressing people to get vaccinated and the elderly should be getting booster shots if they haven't already. In fact, adults should get booster shots if they haven't already. But this, mm -hmm. this is kind of obvious and I sometimes think we've reached the point at which there's some core of the population that just isn't going to listen whatever we say, but right. it's still worth saying. Yeah. Actually, there was a terrific article in yesterday's New York Times on that, uh, basically making the argument that it's really all about trust, that there's a significant fraction of the population, something on the order of at least a quarter, that do not trust the institutions of society. Yeah. And that that level of trust says, you know, uh, uh, I just don't trust what you're doing with these vaccines and I won't participate. Uh, yes, I know that it's good for my community, but I just don't buy it. Uh, I don't trust the institutions behind it. And, and you know, if you look at people who's, where the institutions have failed them for generations, mm -hmm. it's not hard to understand why they feel that way. And so, but, and that means that sort of a rational argument isn't going to win the day with them. That's the problem. So I think you're absolutely right. We're not going to get past those people. Peter, I think that's a great transition to the next topic that I wanted to talk about, which is this trust crisis that we're all living in that you just described and thinking about, how, you know, that's impacted so many things across business and government and society at large over the past few years. Mick, I wanted to turn to you and, and, and ask what that's going to look like coming in the future and how that impacts the way you think about scenarios. Yeah. Great question, and, and totally agree with Peter that the pandemic is exposing some of this frayed trust, whether it's in countries where, honestly, the relationship between government and its citizens has always been a challenge. And you see that in Eastern Europe and parts of the developing world where the uh, where the trust issue has been huge and, and vaccine hesitancy and vaccine take-up is, is low. But now we're starting to see trust as a bigger problem um, in, in the developed world as well. Uh, and I think one thing for businesses uh, that comes out of, of of that observation about the pandemic is that it, it calls on business. They're not going to solve the problem by just thinking about their individual relationship with their customers. That's hugely important, right? It's hugely important to build trust with your customers. But actually, this takes place in a context of society. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the you know one of the recommendations, one of the strategies that we've seen rising to the fore through the pandemic for for businesses is to think about how they serve that broader stakeholder group. Right, and the 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 trust will not be rebuilt on a kind of a one to one basis. It's actually also about how society as a whole kind of takes takes a different posture, and how people start to feel invested. They start to feel uh, that decisions are being made for their benefit, mm -hmm. uh, and that it's not just uh, a kind of an every everyone out for themselves type of type of situation. Mm -hmm. um, so you see, you know, our leadership out there talking about the trust crisis, talking about what business needs to do, um, but it's also going to be a broader societal challenge. You know, Neil, I'm curious about a sort of historical precedent or if this, you know, triggers anything for you in terms of when there were opportunities for leadership here and when the right decisions led to solving a problem and maybe when <laughs> the wrong decision led the other direction. Are we in a moment right now where leaders can make a really big impact? Is it a, is it a, a pivot point right now? Well, there are two things I think to notice. One is that we tend to exaggerate the importance of, of presidents and prime ministers in particularly coping with emergencies, with disasters. In reality, in a public health crisis, uh, a lot depends really on the public health bureaucracy whose job it is. Uh, and it shouldn't, in fact, 
involve a lot of presidential or prime ministerial discretion. Mm -hmm. We know that there were ways of dealing with this well because there were a number of democracies that dealt with it very well last year and continue to deal with it relatively well. I'm thinking of Taiwan, South Korea. Uh, they did much better last year than any Western democracy because they they understood what a version of SARS that was less deadly and more contagious might be like. And they had a very, very rapid response. Uh, they took literally and seriously Larry Brilliant's great piece of advice, early detection, early action, and almost no Western government did that. Mm -hmm. That wasn't really because of populist presidents, though it was tempting to blame them. It was much more to do with public health bureaucracies being very slow moving and I think underestimating the nature of a of a new coronavirus. Mm -hmm. The second point I'd, I'd make is that under these uh, circumstances, when a, a crisis drags on, as this one is, mm -hmm. and we all feel like it's so boring, we wish it would be over, we're despondent, we don't really feel like any more restrictions, we'd like it all to be over, like children who want to arrive at the destination, are we nearly there yet? Mm -hmm. The, the role of leadership there is actually somewhat different. If in the first phase, the technocrats have to get it right, the public health officials have to get it right, ramp up testing, all that kind of thing, which didn't really happen in the West last year. But, but by the time you get to this stage in the pandemic, we're in year two, and it looks like it's dragging on to, it, into a third year, the role of leadership is terribly important in, in inspiring people, mm -hmm. making them feel that they, they should keep going and not give up, giving them hope, telling them mm -hmm. there is some kind of end in sight. This isn't going to be a permanent state of semi-lockdown. And I think, crucially, persuading people that some sacrifice of individual uh, liberty is necessary in the emergency. Now, this was perfectly obvious to the generation of World War II. Right. But a lot of people, it seems to me, in the Western world have, have lost sight of this central idea of liberalism, that in a free society, in an emergency, there has to be some restriction on the individual. You can't just turn the lights on in the blitz and leave the curtains open. But this is what, what leadership is about, not deciding whether a novel coronavirus necessitates ramping up of testing. That's the job in the US of the Centers for Disease Control. Right. But when it comes to leading to inspiring people, particularly in the long, hard slog in the late stages of pandemic, then I think presidents have an important role to play and prime ministers too. Yeah, it's that sense of, you know, of shared fate, that we are a common people, that uh, what you do affects your fellow citizens, and that uh, your obligation is not just simply to yourself, but to your community uh, in the midst of a crisis. Uh, look, and I think that's really quite profound. And I think that in some places have done that quite well and others not so much, unfortunately. And I think that's a, the big challenge. It's a different era than the fireside chats from FDR, yes, exactly. which is which is really what we, what we need to galvanize everybody around it. But it, it's so hard to do in our current sort of media environment right now. So, Michael, I think there's another aspect of this we haven't touched on that I think is very important in terms yeah. of the context for the next year, which is the economic aspect. Absolutely. And again, Neil's team has been looking at some depth at this. And I think the question, and I and I, I want to put it to Neil, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing all the signs uh, of inflation uh, and that, uh, you know, at, at the beginning of this debate, it was, is this temporary? Is this just a transitory phenomenon driven by supply disruptions due to the pandemic and a stimulus 
that was working, mm-hmm. uh, and that as the supply disruption unwinds and the stimulus begins to unwind, why things will get back to kind of normal 2% kind of levels of inflation. But the signs right now are worrying. Uh, they're worrying in that the, we're spending a lot more. We're keeping the spending going on the one hand. Uh, the inflation numbers are high. We've seen energy prices rise rather dramatically, supply disruptions there. And we're seeing the cascade of the supply disruptions worldwide getting worse and worse. That could create a real kind of economic disruption or a high level inflation and then a major response to it, uh, uh, another major downturn. Neil, what do you think? I think future historians will say that the economic consequences of the pandemic were a bigger deal than the pandemic itself. If all you knew historically were the percentages of the world's population killed in a pandemic, you would put this in the top 10. Uh, Even if you take the economist's top estimate for total deaths, you're looking at something like 0.26% of the world's population, maybe a bit more. That's, That's the maximum estimate. Whereas the uh, in- influenza that swept the world in 1918-19 was an order of magnitude larger than that in terms of its impact. This is not one of history's really big pandemics, although you might be surprised to hear me say that. But in terms of its economic impact, it looks more like a world war. Certainly, if all you knew was the public finance data and the monetary data, there's been enormous expansion of the federal debt and an enormous expansion of the uh, money supply. And, and the US has led the world in this, but other countries have had similar trajectories. One way of getting scenario building right, I'm sure you'd agree with this, Peter and Mick, is is you have to kind of talk to lots of different people with lots of different expertise. And earlier this year, I spent a lot of time talking to Larry Summers about what he thought was going on. And prior to his February uh, op-ed predicting that the economy was going to overheat and we'd have an inflation problem, we'd done quite a lot of offline chat about that and looked at historical analogies. Uh, we thought about the post-World War II analogy and decided it didn't really fit because the end of a pandemic's not like the end of a war. And we ended up thinking that the Fed and, and uh, the government more broadly were making pretty similar mistakes to those of the late 1960s. In the 60s, inflation was around 2% or lower in the first half. Then it jumped up towards 6% or even higher in the second half. And it was largely as a result of fiscal and monetary policy. Not that it was a pandemic-related expansion. It had to do with the Great Society program and the Vietnam War. But the effect, crucially, was to cause inflation expectations to become de-anchored. People started to expect future inflation. And that's the crucial transmission mechanism that causes inflation to rise. We're seeing exactly that happen this year. And people's inflation expectations have jumped. And with inflation above 6% on the uh, most recent reading, it's not surprising. In any case, the Fed told people it wanted inflation to go up. And guess what? It did. And people have drawn the conclusion that the Fed doesn't really mind about inflation anymore because the Fed has basically said that. I think if one looks ahead, unless there is some additional crisis, and that's a very important caveat, Inflation ought to come down from above 6%, but it's not going to come down to 2% next year, no way. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll, it'll probably settle around the 35 to 4% range, I would guess, next year. That would only change, I think, if there were a really significant additional shock, like, for example, a war breaking out. Now, you might say, a war, Neil? A war? But a war could actually break out 
really quite soon over, I can think of at least two issues, mm-hmm. Taiwan in East Asia and Ukraine in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. If you get that on top of our current very inflationary environment, then you could see a, another uptick in inflation. And this is a very remarkable consequence that most economists failed to foresee. When Larry Summers wrote that piece back in February, he was denounced, mm-hmm. not least by administration economists, uh, who accused him of sour grapes because he hadn't got a job in the Biden administration. I, I know Larry Summers well enough to know that he never thinks about that kind of thing. He just looks <laughs> at what he sees and he saw a massive overstimulus of the economy as it was coming out of the worst of the pandemic. The vaccines were the stimulus. To put an additional multi-trillion dollar fiscal stimulus on top of that was to risk overheating the economy. And that's exactly what happened. Peter, you have any thoughts on, on this? Well, look, I, I think uh, right now, again, we're in a situation where you can see a lot of the forces at work. Uh, and the question will be, uh, from my point of view, how we manage the kind of unwinding of this going forward. Can can we kind of wind down from high levels of expenditure? Yeah. Um, and I think right now we're probably locked into a pretty high level of inflation through this next year, 18 months. It's going to be pretty hard. for And and so I think it is not at all implausible that, and unfortunately for Joe Biden and the Democrats, yeah. that as we go into the 22, uh, 2022 elections, that we're going to be seeing a downturn, mm-hmm. that uh, the Fed will be pulling the plug. Um, and you may remember, uh, looking at a little historical analogy, in 1992, we'd had a brief recession, uh, a, a brief upturn. Uh, then it was Greenspan. Greenspan. It was Alan Greenspan yeah. uh, was the head of the Fed. Uh, uh, he squeezed the money supply and we hit a recession uh, and that was uh, uh, felt in the beginning of the year, 1992. But just as the election was hitting, it was already beginning to produce exactly the effect that was intended the economy was turning, but poor George Bush lost the election because people had just experienced a downturn they blamed him for. Well, it seems like uh, this administration was looking at some history, but Neil, maybe not the right history on this one. Very easy to draw the wrong historical analogies because most people in government haven't really studied history. Uh, And that that leads to lots of bad uh, applied history. Mm -hmm. And we've been plagued by that, actually, I think Mm -hmm. over the last 20 years. People... Mm -hmm applying the wrong analogies to, to the aftermath of 9-11, then the wrong analogies during the financial crisis, and, and now we've had it again uh, coming into 2021. And this is why I think there's a role, not just at Salesforce, but in, in government for the kind of thing that, that Peter and, and Mick and I try to do, combining mm-hmm. historical insight that's properly, thoroughly grounded with the skills of scenario building so that one comes up with plausible futures mm-hmm. and you try to attra- attach some probabilities to those. That just isn't done rigorously in government at mm-hmm. all. And mm-hmm. this, I think, can explain a lot of the major policy errors that we've seen over the last two decades. I just pile onto that and say, t- typically, um, when the crisis is upon you, it's too late to start to, to to gather the evidence and think through what the right analogies are. Well, if we've seen anything in this, in this crisis, it's that much of the planning that was done was just fell apart under the face of the pressure of the crisis. And so really it's about not just thinking through what might happen, but rehearsing decisions you'd need to make and getting clarity, right, across the the leadership group, the decision-making group around, if this happens, what should we be doing? What should we be thinking out? And how will we know if if the indicators are telling us that this is coming or not? Because when the crisis is upon you, the 
the willingness to um to stick to logical consistency can can actually fall apart quite easily mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well yeah and that's where i wanted to to end it was to get a sense of for everybody out there making decisions whether you're in the c-suite or you're running your own business or just in your own life what are, what are some of the tenants and maybe I'll start with you Peter around how to step back and try to you know think through how you how you make decisions look I, I, th- I want to uh, focus on two things uh, first of all uh, Mick mentioned a phrase early on uh, ruthless curiosity when I used to yeah. hire people at, for global business network that's what I looked for Mick was a perfect example uh, he really wants to know and the <laughs> truth is so is Neil look uh, Neil does not limit himself to tired old historians he looks at the whole world uh, mm-hmm. and and studies uh, the forces and facts from everywhere so uh, and, and is really hungry to know about science and technology and politics and economics and environment and so on so ruthless mm-hmm. curiosity is, is number one and then being uh, willing to ask the hard uncomfortable questions that challenge your own thinking and so I think in doing good scenario planning you actually have to challenge your own thinking now that's very hard for yourself. Mm-hmm. That's why you read people like Neil and others, uh, and you talk to those people because they challenge your thinking. They a- force mm-hmm. you to ask the hard questions. So the combination of ruthless curiosity to explore the world for the forces and facts that are changing it, and then forcing yourself to ask the hard questions, how could I really be wrong? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd add one final thought. You can be your own historian. Your own life is a, a succession of episodes that you can subject to analysis. Mm-hmm. And counterfactual questions are a pretty useful thing to ask. What if I had not done that? How would things have turned out? Is there a pattern of mistakes I make, whether it's as an investor or as a parent or as a manager? We can think historically without grand questions. Let's just think historically about what went wrong and and what went right in our lives. Historical thinking is actually something that that we can apply in our everyday existences to get better at avoiding those small disasters that that can affect only us and our our families. But, you know, a disaster that just affects you and your family can be as big as Mm -hmm. a disaster that affects the whole world for you. Mm -hmm. So I think we can all think a bit more historically and and use these disciplines of scenario planning in our own lives. Mm -hmm. Great. Mick, anything to add? I would definitely agree with everything that Peter and Neil have just said. The one additional point maybe to emphasize is uh, in this context of decisions as a social process is, you know, talk to others about what you're thinking about, express your assumptions. Um, You know, we mentioned the fact that we're at that time of year when a bunch of 2022 forecasts are emerging. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bring those in, have a conversation, ask people what they think, and think about which of those things are most important for for your organization, for your group, for your team, Mm -hmm. right? What what would we need to do differently if this happened? And just get people, get that conversation going, because once it starts, once people realize they have permission to to think about these things, to challenge the assumptions of others, uh, it just leads to uh, better conversations, better strategy, better better decision-making overall. Okay, wonderful. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And Neil, thank you for joining. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Mick, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. Lovely to be with you again. That was Peter Schwartz, Chief Futures Officer and SVP of Strategic Planning at Salesforce. 
Mick Costigan, Vice President of Salesforce Futures, and Neil Ferguson, historian, author, and senior fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. Hey, be sure to tune in in January. We're kicking things off with a series of conversations with female leaders, including Kara Swisher, New York Times columnist and host of the Pivot podcast, and Sarah Fryer, CEO of Nextdoor. For all of us here at Blazing Trails, we wish you and your families a happy and healthy holiday season. Have a great new year. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. 